0: Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Positive Enterprise Value. Bigelow LLC's website is bigelowllc.com, where we freely share immediately useful information with high performing entrepreneur owner managers who want to build their enterprise value for the possibility of creating a capital gain someday. Hey, how is it that some private enterprises successfully transition through evolutions and revolutions in leadership, management, and ownership? Some end up with terrific new majority owners, the entrepreneur-owner-managers moving gracefully into the next interesting and rewarding chapter of their lives, surrounded by friends, family, their positive legacy assured, their independence powered by the fortune just realized, while others, well, some others' outcomes don't look just like that. Is it merely luck or is it more than luck? At Bigelow, we think it's more than luck. For over 30 years, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of high-performing owner-managers and working with hundreds. I've seen that successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves clues, breadcrumbs in the forest that we can follow. Deconstructing the behavior of high-performing EOMs lets us learn a lot about peak performance and their optimal experience. So in this series of podcasts, my goal is to interview seasoned, successful entrepreneur-owner-managers who are high performers, maybe even peak performers in their niche domains in both the for-profit and the not-for-profit areas. We look for patterns of connectedness across these domains. Today, I'm thrilled to share with you a private one-on-one interview with my friend and podcast guest, George Antoniatis, who is the founder and CEO of PlaneSense, one of the largest fractional aircraft operators in North America. A pioneer in bringing the benefits of fractional ownership to customers in North America, George Antoniatis began dreaming of being an aviation business owner, entrepreneur as an adolescent, and just never stopped. In this podcast, George speaks of his upbringing in Greece, his undergrad education in Switzerland, attending grad school in America. From his position as a consultant at McKinsey, George hatched the idea for what was to become Plain Sense, rented a room at the Norwood, Massachusetts airport, painted it with his wife, and off they went. I had the fun of digging into some of George's early inspirations, some of what he views as successes, some disappointments, and his evolution as a manager and as an entrepreneur in this hour-long podcast. This podcast was recorded live on May 8th, 2019 at Plain Sense's headquarters at the Peace International Trade Port in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. As always, these podcasts are unscripted and unedited. I hope you enjoy it. So uh George, thank you so much for being with me on Positive Enterprise Value. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm sitting here in the headquarters of Plain Sense at the Peace International Trade Port in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. You know, so many people know you. Uh you have a large persona in in the aviation industry worldwide, uh in, in Europe, in North America. They know you as the founder and as the CEO, owner of Plain Sense, but but if you could use a noun or two to describe what you do professionally day to day, what would you say?
1: So, I come every day and lead the funnest ship that I can ever lead, and you could call it an airship. Uh, I uh, am the CEO and chief cultural officer of this company that I started where we hope to continue to be the intelligent choice in our industry. So, I make sure that we do that. That's what I do every day.
0: I love that. I'm a chief cultural officer. Did you learn to be an entrepreneur because of your family? Were your parents entrepreneurs? My
1: father was an entrepreneur, and I think I did learn everything about entrepreneurship from him. Uh, He was in the shipping industry, and I saw the ups and the downs, and I saw what it is to persevere and to set a goal and try to reach it no matter what. And I always thought that I
0: would do the same. So as you went to um, university, and then if I understand your background, you came to America and went to graduate school. As you moved from schooling to your professional career, uh, did you always sort of have in mind that you would be a business owner? Yes.
1: And it's interesting because I talk to people who are starting up and I joke that if you waste time at a business school, you can't be an entrepreneur. But I did that. (laughs) And those were sort of my risk uh, mitigation mechanisms. Uh, I came, my family is very much into academia, into rigor. So I, I got a degree in electrical engineering primarily for the rigor of the thing. And uh, then I continued to business school because I felt I needed those tools. But it was always in the back of my mind that I will be driving a ship. What was your first job out of business school? Well, out of business school I joined McKinsey & Company. And that's about as orthogonal to an entrepreneur's path as possible. (laughs) But I do believe that McKinsey was a fantastic finishing school for me. I had had only 2 years of experience in the United States. I came to business school here and that was my whole exposure to the to the to the American way of doing things. So I felt that it would be very good if I could do some real work that would be a natural continuation. And I learned a tremendous amount of things during those years at McKinsey.
0: And was it when you transitioned out of McKinsey that was the birth of plain sense? Uh,
1: that is correct. Uh, When I transitioned out of McKinsey, I spent a little time trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And the first uh, venture was called Alpha Flying, and it was a flying club. It was a low-risk approach to enter an industry that's known for its complexity and for the graveyard of all the, the failed companies in the space. So... My wife and I, we painted a room uh, over a shop next to the Norwood Airport, and uh, in 1992, Alpha Flying was born, and a couple of years later, I became very interested in the concept of fractional aircraft ownership, and that's when the Plane
0: Sense program was born. So. Um as you moved into the, your uh, time of being an entrepreneur, as you now think back to yourself as an employee, do you have empathy for your employers? My employees or my employers? Your employers. Now that you think back to thinking of yourself as an employee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although... Um, yeah, yes. And as you moved from employee to employer, what was your. Do you have a surprise or two that surprised you about that role?
1: No. It was pretty much as I expected it. And I hope that I'm constantly growing to better, better do it
0: every day. So, as you and your wife be, uh, painted the place at the Norwood Airport, and it was the birth of Alpha Flying, the predecessor, in effect, of, of the Plain Sense concept. As you think back, George, to some of the challenges you had along the way, do one or two stand out? Oh, yes.
1: (laughs) What are they? Well, the first, I mean, I don't think there's an entrepreneur who cannot speak of volumes of challenges. Yes. And uh, I think that's what makes us run. Uh, But there are a couple that really stand out. It was at the very beginning when we had ordered our very first aircraft for the nascent Plain sense program. We had practically zero record. I had gone to a, um, a broker of aircraft financing who assured me that everything would be okay. And weeks before sort of the deadline to get everything in order, he said, well, by the way, the bankers have to come and meet you. So they came to that one room that we had in Norwood. And I remember the broker wore these uh, aviation or hunting yellow lensed glasses, never took them off. And the banker mumbled various things. And in the end, they asked me to leave my office so they can talk. And then they came out and said, we're not going to do this. And that was one of my first serious
0: challenges. And, and But the aircraft was arriving? It was being delivered? The
1: aircraft was being built. Uh. And so uh, the, the degrees of freedom were very few.
0: So were you able to go get in a, a different bank?
1: No. Uh, I developed a completely different methodology of how to do this. And actually, I thank them for the challenge that they put in front of me because I think the solution was a
0: much more elegant one. And what was it?
1: Well, again, we needed bank financing, but I increased the equity in the deal by convincing the manufacturer who was looking for a demonstrator aircraft in the United States that they could lease time from our aircraft and prepay it two years in advance. And that went into a significant chunk of equity
0: into the airplane. And so when you say you thank the bank for their intransigence and the fact that you had this challenge, which you overcame successfully, uh, why do you thank them? Is there anything from that that learned that stays with you even today? Yeah, if you need a friend, get a dog. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, today uh, you use bankers. Yes. And what are some of the uh, characteristics that you look for with them?
1: Well, one of the things that uh, are very important to me is very, very strong relationships with our key suppliers. I could say that there are two philosophies. There are the people who every week are negotiating and looking around to find the you know 0.1% cheaper supplier. And then there are people like me where if you look at our key suppliers, they've been around for 20 or 15 years. So in a similar fashion, um, the bankers we use, uh, some of them have been around. Uh, one of the banks we use has been around since 1997 for us, and that's unusual. And so similarly, we, when we look for, say, a bank, we try to look at the people and at the bank and whether we can align in a way so that we don't need to be shopping around days or months or years later.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's uh, really sort of amazing to me, George, how in the course of our careers, really, uh, that uh, has largely changed. If you think about the commoditization, for example, particularly I think of capital, where maybe early in in your career and early in my career for sure, uh, the people who had the capital ruled, and entrepreneurs really went hat in hand to try to get their businesses financed. Isn't it amazing how today it's gone? It's turned over, and today. It's what the entrepreneurs have that's like plain sense, that's rare and valuable. And to a very large degree, the capital is a commodity which you can rent at the same price from anyone. Yes,
1: but I would beg to differ a little in the aviation industry. Our industry continues to be a black sheep for bankers. So, although fundamentally I agree exactly with what you say, we are lagging a little in that freedom.
0: So, as you began to develop plain sense and probably uh, after the first aircraft or two, the model began to take shape in your mind. Did the model, did you go through some chapters? Uh, And if so, can you just, just describe a couple of them to us?
1: Well, the chapters are very linear because the plan was very linear. So in our business, critical mass is what rules. And so the key thing is, how can you quickly develop a large enough fleet So that you can develop the service that will then cause you to have an even larger fleet. Right. So in the very beginning, uh, we used some, maybe you could call it guerrilla warfare techniques. We found a couple of clients who wanted very large shares. Uh, So that way we filled up airplanes very quickly. Uh, So the first chapter was the chapter of exploration where you're really seeing whether your model actually works the way you wanted it and whether the people are the right people and whether your systems are working properly. And then a few years later we started um, sort of gaining the momentum we needed and then it became the challenge of how do you position against your competitive environment because in the beginning it's just we just need to make this work no matter what. And then after that, you start having a moment to look around and carefully study how your competition is moving, how the industry is moving. Um, and so then you start creating
0: structures to protect from that and help your growth. Remind me, uh, was uh, NetJets started about the same time or before you? NetJets
1: started before us. And they, they uh, are part of the inspiration. Yes. And... Um, Fractional ownership was not a prevalent uh, play as it is now. Uh, We uh, studied net jets a lot, and my positioning was that we would come into the market with a more cost-effective program. And 25 years later, we're still doing the same.
0: Right, right. So in the first years, I, I take your point exactly. You probably were striving for to get to be the right size. Yes. And and uh, I'm imagining that for a number of years it was always out in front of you. We, we've got to get to be the right size. If we could just get to be the right size, we could be more efficient, effective, cost, whatever, whatever. Are you the right size now? We're still not the right size. <laughs> <laughs> our,
1: our, goal, our goals are constantly changing. So we're ambitious. Um, I am very careful because we are... First and foremost, a service business. I say that we're a logistics business with a white glove service. Uh, You're moving packages around, George. No, we are not. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly not. We're we're moving around our valued clients. And there's always the question of what does scale do to a very personal service? And so we're constantly morphing as we grow. We try to maintain that personal high-level touch which changes a little as we grow, and that's why I say we morph. We continue to offer the same thing, but we may have to offer it differently as we get hundreds and hundreds more clients.
0: I take your point about scale, though. I mean, uh, you and I can think of other examples of organizations which began as small or even boutique, and then as they scaled, they found some of those delivery issues to be more and more challenging. Is there a top of the mountain in terms of scale for you? Is there a size at which it would be impossible to deliver what you want to deliver?
1: Well, I'll let you know when we get there because currently we've managed to do a pretty good job as we've doubled and trebled our size. Uh, I think we could do another doubling without having negative
0: effects. Great. You know, we've had, uh, what, maybe 10 or 11 years now of an economic expansion. And I'm thinking back, and I have a very good memory for 2008 and nine, and I have a good memory for 2001, 1999, 1987. Um, and I'm just thinking about—I uh, don't think we knew each other too much back in eighty, uh, sorry, in uh, 2008, 2009. Maybe just about began to know each other. But I'm wondering how did that feel because you were 20 years into. Plane sets. And I would imagine things were going pretty well. And yet I don't know this because we haven't shared this with each other, but I suspect that the slowdown had a significant impact. Can you talk about that? Of course. Um, the
1: first impact it's had, ex post facto, is we can talk as survivors. Right. And that's a particularly in the aviation industry or any capital-intensive industry, that's quite a chip on our shoulder. Uh, so It's quite interesting. We had just poised for another growth spurt at 2008. In fact, this facility we're in, that was a Greenfield site we developed, we moved in in the spring of 2008. Wow, ouch. Exactly. Uh, And we had uh, a hefty order book of airplanes coming. The advantage in our business is that we are much more resilient than other models. Because if you really think of it, if we have 50 airplanes, about 40 of those are owned by the share owners. So the capital intensiveness is not as bad as it looks. Mm-hmm. We only own what we call a core fleet, which is needed to make the system work. And that's about 20%. It, it, it's fungible. It moves between 16 and 20%. So by definition, our industry is better recession-protected. There were other players in the industry that were in total free fall because they owned all the assets. Of course, the events of 2008, 2009, etc., affected the perceived buying power of, of our clients or the actual buying power of our clients. And what we saw happening was a cascade event. People who owned much bigger airplanes were getting rid of them, and some of them were coming to us because we were a more cost-effective solution. So of the programs, we believe that we were the one that fared probably better. Mm.
0: I understand, yeah. Did you have any experiences similar to the one where the banks uh, let you down in Norwood that were formative in 2008, 2009, meaning they caused you to swerve a little bit in terms of strategy or execution? Absolutely. What are they? Uh, Our bank, our key bank was acquired by another
1: bank that decided to exit the aviation industry. So we were actually just left out. It's like, get out of the car and walk. And so um, you had to go find another bank? Uh, We had to do that, which was extremely difficult at the time. Yeah. So again, I will say proudly, that for a couple of years, we operated without any bank financing. Wow. We I just don't had think a I knew
0: che- that. We just had a checkbook. Oh. Tough to do in this business. Whew.
1: And I will tell you that I, one of the funnest meetings I've had with Everything's Relative, of course, was with those, in quotation marks, friendly bankers. We sat in our glass conference room as a new airplane we had just bought pulled up. And I said to them, I want to thank you. Because of you, we learned how to pile up our
0: quarters and buy an airplane ourselves without you <laughs> so as you came out of the 2008 2009 timeframe you've been expanding uh, it seems to me as you've been expanding very successfully again and I'm imagining as your scale increased that your role evolves can you tell me about that yes
1: now I am somewhat of a manager who wants to know as much as possible in the organization, but I am understanding more and more that that is not feasible. So over time, I have continued to build a very, very good management team that reports to me and who have authority. Um, So
0: I'm more and more less involved with what used to be details that I knew by heart. And if you think about your your day, your week, your month, and you just think about how you allocate your time or your energy, is there a functional area that you spend more time in than any other one?
1: It changes. But I would say that uh, I am very involved with forging arrangements with the, the significant deals. So the purchases of our fleets, the the acquisition of another bank relationship, uh, assessing our, you know, the, key, the key things that make this place work is where I spend most of my time. I also spend more and more of my time being on boards and other visibility places in our industry where I go uh, and represent ourselves. I mean, we don't necessarily acquire clients that way, but it's a way of being part in the goings-on of the industry, being part of it, being able to voice an opinion, and to make ourselves known.
0: Yeah, I don't know anything about your the details of your relationship with Pilatus, but because of Plainsense's success, and while you probably view them as a very important supplier, the other must be true also, that they, view, they must view you personally and Plainsense as an ambassador for their fleet.
1: You know, it's very complicated because my first university was in Switzerland. So I spent five years at the ETH, ETH, the uh, sort of the equivalent MIT of uh, Switzerland. And so I'm very familiar with the, uh, with the psyche and the thought process of the Swiss. Um, and I speak their dialects. So it's a very, very uh, friendly uh, feeling and yes, indeed, when we got our first PC-12, it was the 20th one built, and it was in 1995, wow. people would call it the Platypus. There was no knowledge of this aircraft or this manufacturing in the United States. And I will say with all the modesty that we put this plane on the map for them. They understand that, and uh, I feel that we have a very good relationship. Of course, they have to take care of their business. But uh, I think that the bet in 1995 has
0: paid off. Yeah, because um, I, uh, I think now, as a, as a non-aviation person, when I speak to people about plane sense and the PC-12, I have a neighbor in my second home who is a United uh, commercial pilot. He's one of the most senior ones in the fleet. And he asked me about... Plain sense, and I mentioned the PC twelve, and he said, "Oh, P, you know, that's the best aircraft in the world." And I thought, "That's coming from a seven forty seven pilot," so pretty, pretty great.
1: Yeah, and uh, we've participated. Uh, I wrote a little piece uh, some years ago about how. Well, let me back up. I believe very strongly in the connections of. The customer with the industry of us, industry, and academia. I think those are linkages that are very important. So in the case of Pilatus, we have fed back to them and helped them develop. If you look at the PC-12 in 1995, the PC-12 today, they look the same, but they're fundamentally different. And a lot of those differences have come from the input of plain sense. We're very proud of that.
0: So... As we think about the growth of Plain Sense, and I'm going to ask you some personal questions soon, but as we stay on the company for a moment, and we think about how you just described evolving your role and building the team, you know, it's sort of axiomatic that, that organizations work best when the entire team sort of thinks, acts as if they're owners of the business, right? And I said to you, you're in the package business, and you corrected me and said, oh, no, no, we're, we're, we have our very valuable clients. How do you fuel that feeling, that buy-in with your entire team? What cultural uh, mechanisms do you use to fuel that?
1: Well, the first thing is that I try to foster this very tight-knit team. I mean, we're the musketeers that are carrying the flag of service. We are the, we are the company that will keep proving that we always put our clients' interests first, you know, within reason, Uh, that every one of us has to always do that every day. And I can say it seems to be successful. My immediate management team are all very long-tenure players. Okay, we've had some retirements recently, but it's not unusual for somebody to be 15 or 20 years on this management team. So over the years, I guess I've rubbed off. We really care. And I I joke to people, if you sat in one of our management meetings, you would think that this company is about to to disappear. Because we take the 99% successes for granted. And we worry about that 1% or sub-1% where we didn't perform as well. And that's all we spend our time on.
0: Yeah, I think uh, many entrepreneur owner managers who are listening to this podcast will understand that feeling that, Uh, They can can constantly raise the bar Mm -hmm. and uh, it can be exhausting. Hopefully there's a chance to celebrate wins, but there's a, a, a discussion usually of, okay, what went well? Okay, that's good. Raise a glass. Now, what can we do better? And I think there's a lot of people probably listening, George, who are nodding their heads and saying, yeah, I do that too. It's the only way. So, um... In this podcast, in, in our blog, we talk, we think a lot about goals and strategies to reach those goals. Um, you know, there are also behaviors to reach those goals. And if behaviors are repeated enough times, they become a habit. What are your best habits? Personally or organizationally? Personally.
1: I like to work a lot. I also like to play a lot. <clears throat> when that's allowed. Uh, I, my daughter says I have 16 eyes. So i What does she mean by that? She means that there's nothing that my, when I glance, there's nothing that I miss. Uh, I've designed the interiors of our planes. Uh, for a long time, I also accepted the planes when they arrived to make sure there's not a single scratch on them. Of course, after you start flying them, they get scratches. But, uh, I am uh, sort of a relentlessly observant, call it a habit, call it a uh, a weakness. So, I there is no weekend, of course. I don't think entrepreneurs have weekends. Right. Uh, so I I start my day very early. Those are very productive hours. Um, And I just want to make sure that everything we or I produce is top notch. We got some, say, golf hats or sailing hats with our logo on them. I think I went through 120 samples before we found the perfect hat. The the providers were saying, is he crazy? No, I'm not, because exactly that shows our attention to detail, and that pervades everything that we
0: do here. And I just want to record for the audience that Amanda Telford is smiling behind George. And Amanda, you, he, so you hear George? I don't want to hear any more crap from anybody at Begala what an animal I am because, because he's my hero. Yeah, I get that. It's, uh, it's so challenging to find that um, that spot where you need to set the bar and you have expectations of others, including people within the organization and external Uh, But not set it so high that people are discouraged. And that's just a very hard spot. And it takes a lot of negotiation, sometimes with ourselves, to find that spot. It does, but
1: I negotiate very poorly against myself. So we're always setting it very high.
0: Personally, do you live very messy or very neat? Uh, I'd say neat. I'd say so too. You're not only a business leader, and you're not only an entrepreneur, but you, uh, it strikes me, are a son, uh, a husband, a father. Um, I don't know if you have siblings, but if so, maybe a brother. Um, uh, I haven't met your daughter, but I know she's a young woman. So over the years that you've been building the business, she's also been uh, going through adolescence, teenage, and growing up. How have you balanced being a father and a CEO of a super super successful business?
1: That's hugely complicated. Yeah. And uh, when I stop and look back one day, maybe I will find things that I should have done differently. But um, um, my daughter, Anna, um, seems to have developed extremely well, maybe despite me. (laughs) So... um, I feel pretty good about that.
0: Do you have any kryptonite? Do you have any ultimate weakness in terms of an activity or a person that takes away your strength?
1: Ooh. <laughs> um, I, um, you know, I've never thought about it, so hopefully if it's out there It's not going to be close to me.
0: Good. Great. I haven't seen any. So when you describe um, building the business, building the family, um, learning and growing as a person, um, I agree with you. Entrepreneurs don't keep regular hours. So, you know, uh, days and weeks are usually filled with uh, great passion. Sometimes it's work. Sometimes it's play. It can be exhausting. And so uh, some people uh, have a, a, a method, a habit for getting re-energized or rejuvenated. Some people work out. Some people do yoga. Some people meditate. What do you do? Well, I do
1: exercise.
0: Uh, but what I do is I try
1: to escape for 48 hours. It could be adding a day or two to a business trip. It could be adding a day to a normal trip I just go off the grid and uh, do something fun I love art I love music of course I love aviation um, I love to travel so it's funny I travel a tremendous amount for my work but I'm not scared to add yet another little trip at the end of the previous trip where the decompression will happen
0: yeah that's great
1: I also decompress fantastically on 12-hour intercontinental trips so that's, that's held me together. I do recognize that maybe new strategies might be needed as time goes by, but I'm, I'm okay now.
0: Are you, pretty, uh, are you pretty focused on your workouts, your exercise? Yes. Pretty, do you, uh, is that a beginning of the day thing?
1: It's a 6 uh, to 6.30 in the morning thing yeah. where I'm uh, partially awake, and uh, it takes place uh, three or four times a week. That's great. That's great.
0: Someone said, in the end, the meaning of life is centrally tied up with what you do in your work. Do you agree with that? Uh, I
1: would say yes, but I would add in the byproducts of it.
0: Ah, such as?
1: So, for example, um, because of my work, I, I get to meet a tremendous amount of very interesting people who become friends uh because of my work i have uh, the the fortune of being able to collect things like uh carpets or art or clocks that i like um so yes i think it's all all the same i mean it is true that some people have said that nobody at their deathbed ever said i wish i'd worked more but i do believe that uh I have a very full life and a very happy one, and my work and what I've created fulfill me greatly.
0: Yeah, I think it's really uh, critical to draw a distinction between someone who is, let's say, a corporate employee uh, for whom that deathbed thing may apply, but for entrepreneurs, at least the most successful, high-performing ones that I know, it's interesting. The general public doesn't seem to know this, but it isn't actually all about work. It's really uh, how they live their lives. And frequently what I, fly, what I find is that to think about work-life balance is the wrong uh, equation. It's really work-life integration that the most successful ones do. My
1: father worked
0: into his 90s,
1: oh, yeah. and uh, I don't think he would have had it any other way.
0: So... Um Young people who are listening to this podcast, maybe they're nascent entrepreneurs, not quite yet entrepreneurs. Maybe they're in business school or in school or in summer jobs. Some of them are thinking about, how can I be a business owner? Do you have any advice that you would give to, let's say, a smart-driven college student about being an entrepreneur?
1: Well, I think that people should be less focused on how much money they will make at the end of the year and be more focused on how they will develop something that fits their passion. And then the value and the, the, the wealth creation will follow. That's my opinion. And sometimes I see that it's completely wrong. Uh, an entrepreneur, or at least I, am driven more with how I can grow my idea and make it more successful. Hopefully, the bottom line will follow. And it's not the, the other way around.
0: Yeah, actually, I've never had a a Begalo client who, when I asked them in a quiet moment, what was your motivation for beginning this business? Not one of them has ever said to to make a fortune. The fortune was the byproduct of how they so passionately, beautifully created their landscape.
1: Exactly. And I see that when I talk to younger people, because I do, I think it's important to motivate people. I see that the... uh,
0: the the priority or the magnetic north is a little skewed so so how does a young person like that how do they identify where they bring value and where their passion might be
1: well where they bring value is a harder question but their passion i i think that we need to to get off our uh, our mobile devices a little and look around I had a long conversation with an artist who was complaining that it used to be that children in a school bus would look out and see the beautiful tree, or a, a bolt of lightning, or a cloud. Instead, everybody's looking at their screen. So people just need to put that down for a moment and really try to find something that makes them click, and then everything will follow.
0: Yeah, we've really had uh, what I'll call a social climate change, haven't we? Where uh, it doesn't seem that the general public understands that the people behind those screens are trying to steal your attention and sell your personal data or advertising with it. That's right.
1: Now, hopefully the pendulum will swing. Eventually, I think it will. But when I talk to younger people, I say to them, sit down and either read a book you like or look outside and think. I mean, where do you want, where do you want to make a difference?
0: You're an incredible critical thinker, independent thinker. It's probably doesn't make you the easiest guy to get along with all the time. But uh, you're also a very um, avid reader, and uh, we both have uh, given each other reading recommendations over the years. Are you reading anything now?
1: Uh, right now I'm not, and I miss that because I, I just don't have enough time to even sleep right now, but
0: there's a new great book. It's called why we sleep by Matthew Walker. Okay. I bet you'd love it. I'll get that. So let's pretend we go to sleep tonight. We wake up tomorrow and magically it's May 9th, 2024 five years from now, what will you be working on?
1: Uh, I'll be working on the next spurt of growth as I'm working on right now. Right now we're in a fantastic period of growth for our company. Having introduced the jet program to our turboprop program, uh, In a proxy, it's very funny that you set that date, because sometime around 2023, I think we will be finished with that significant ramp up, and at that point, I'll be thinking about the next one.
0: Do you ever think about what some people would call retirement?
1: Uh, I do, but I wouldn't call it retirement. I'd call it sort of redefining
0: my time allocation. Uh, I do. And so if I understand your answer uh what you're seeing is an evolution where a next chapter involves maybe different proportions of time uh but I don't hear you saying that no proportion of time will include plain sense. Well, I think we should catch up in 5 years and talk about that. I think we will. So in this group of listeners and you know uh we uh you've you've heard other podcasts where we deliberately have Entrepreneurs from the for-profit world and also from the not-for-profit world very interesting entrepreneurs, but we have both in both sets high performance Superior achievement is common Not all of them however would describe themselves as highly fulfilled or content as individuals Would you describe yourself as content? I'm very content and and by the way, I don't want that to be a hubris, but I am content. That's awesome. And, and why is that? How is that?
1: I started 24 years ago with a dream of setting this company up. We still have a long way to go. We always have a long way to go. But we are one of the key players in our space. People walk up to me and uh, laud what we have done. It's not a matter of ego, it's a matter of satisfaction that the scaffolding that I built back then actually resulted in the building, the, the business building that we have created. I'm extremely pleased because in 1992 I told our first employee, I can't offer you a good healthcare plan, but I promise that I will offer one of the best healthcare plans possible to our people, and that is the case today. I feel extremely content because there's tons of younger people in our space who dream of coming to work for us. I feel content because people end their careers here and are thankful for the time they've had here. Uh, There's so many things to be satisfied about. Plus, it's it's given me the ability to participate in leadership uh, industry-wide. To make an imprint in how planes are developed, I sit on um, various committees helping manufacturers think through. Um, when I was 14 years old, uh, making model plastic airplanes, I I couldn't I wasn't in, uh, sophisticated enough to think that far. But if I could, that would have been my dream.
0: I love your answer for a whole bunch of reasons, but the most, most important reason I love your answer is because the previous question was about the future, and you look to the future, and you have some ideas about it. You have some ideals, I suspect, and you said, let's visit again in five years. And then when I asked you about contentment, you very naturally looked over your shoulder to where you came from, and you, in your mind just now, told us you kind of measured your progress. And I just think probably listeners will hear that because it's an echo of how we think about this concept called the gap and the gain. So I, I, I really love that. I, I want to end with that question, but I'm not going to. I have one more question for you, George. What's the one con- misconception that people, maybe even people who know you well, that they might have about you that you feel is a misunderstanding?
1: Well, some people think uh, that I'm um, uh, strict and those are the people who don't know me. Some people may think that I'm a nerd, meaning uh, single, single uh, focused. That is also a misconception because I have to be single focused on how I run my business, but the rest of me I have many other focuses that most people don't know about. Uh, And there might be a misconception that I'm a workaholic I am, but I also have time to, uh, to feed other habits. Um, I don't I, I think I'm quite open uh, so hopefully there are not many other misconceptions out there.
0: That's great. Well, I want to thank you for being with me this morning. It's fantastic to uh, watch the great success of Plain Sense and to for me to modestly participate in, it in some small way. And I also love that uh, we're talking to an entrepreneur who is not only successful and driven, but content. Thanks. Thank Jordan. you very much.